It's the Mark Stein Show. Mark. November the 11th. Veterans Day in the United States. Remembrance Day in the Commonwealth. And through much of Europe. hour of the 11th day of the 11th month is an appropriate moment to consider two not quite incompatible thoughts. First, that there are horrors almost inconceivable to our world, but that our grandparents and great-grandparents lived with and in many cases died with them as just the role of history's dice. And second, that war is hell, but it is a clarifying hell. Your enemy is ahead and firing on you. For much of the West today, the threat is not our out global war. We are, in a sense, in a post-war world, at least as far as uh, much of uh, Europe and uh, North America is concerned. Uh, But instead, the threats are subtler, incremental, sly and supple, but ultimately just as devastating of our civilization. If that's too big a thought, let me give you a very small thought before we move on from possibly the two most inconsequential Z-list celebs in California. I feel a bit sorry for one of them, especially on this day, because until a couple of years ago, he was a young man who, partly from his own service in Afghanistan, had a special connection with soldiers of the Queen, young and old. Six years ago, His Royal Highness Prince Henry of Wales, as he was then, led a delegation of New Zealand veterans to Italy for the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Monte Cassino. And he was a big hit with those guys. And it was possible to see a man who will never be king Uh, but who nevertheless had carved out a meaningful role for himself. And then Harry met Meggie, and there went that. This year, in his Hollywood exile, the Duke of Sussex cannot be at the Cenotaph in Whitehall or anywhere else, and uh, so he asked if a wreath could be laid on his behalf. And the Queen, or at any rate her courtiers, told him, Take a hike, pal. You're not a member of the royal family anymore. You made your bed. Now lie in it, chump. So instead, the Duke and Duchess went to the Los Angeles National Cemetery and found a couple of Commonwealth veterans buried there, an airman from the Royal Australian Air Force and a soldier from the Royal Canadian Artillery. The last is special to me. The only reason I wound up being born in Toronto is because my maternal grandparents' hometown in Belgium was liberated by the Royal Canadian Artillery. And as far as my own family was concerned, by an RCA soldier called Mac, who knocked on their door and told them that the Krauts were gone 
and they invited him in for a glass of the good stuff uh, that they'd been keeping to celebrate the eventual departure of the Germans. And Max said, if you're ever in Canada, do look me up. And one day, my mother's family decided to take him up on that invitation. Anyway, as I've mentioned before, if I'm in various parts of the world, I often visit Commonwealth War Cemeteries, so I don't object to the Sussexes doing that. What I object to is that on their so-called private visit, they took along some fancy-pants Beverly Hills photographer to do these horribly posed photographs of themselves laying the flowers from their mansion uh, with the Duke standing there wearing not just a Remembrance Day poppy, but all his medals as if he's a genuine member of the royal family on a ceremonial visit to the Canadian Rangers or whatever. This horrible, unutterably vulgar couple checked out of all that in order to be zealous celebrities in La La Land. So get on with it. Make a Netflix series. Give an interview to Charlemagne de God. Go on Entertainment Tonight. Open a Pornhub channel. That's the world you chose. Stay out of the world you threw away. I miss the Prince Harry of Monte Cassino, and so do those Kiwi veterans. But that prince is as dead as the glorious dead inscribed on the cenotaph, and this new one is just some pathetic Instagrammer desperate for clicks. Don't worry, Harry and Meghan's photo op for TMZ is not the full extent of our formal November 11th observances. We'll get to those a little later. If you heard me on Rush yesterday, I did three full hours on the post-election, so I'm a little post-electioned out. Uh, If you haven't uh, heard those three hours, then don't complain that I'm not doing enough post-election crap today. The first headline I saw this morning read, Study finds 353 U.S. counties in 29 states with voter registration rates exceeding 100%. Yeah, yeah, there's a very dog bites man headline. Dog bites man and then votes absentee for Biden. I was asked on Fox and Friends this morning to discuss two topics. The first, Andrew McCabe's testimony uh, yesterday to the Senate Judiciary Committee. If you're too busy following the Democrat shenanigans in the 2020 election, uh, that's the ongoing investigation into the Democrat shenanigans Uh, in the 2016 election. Uh, It should be uh, wrapped up any decade now. The second topic was how can President Biden work with Republicans when Republicans won't even recognize that he's the president? Oh my, I declined politely and spent the night smoking Hunter Biden levels of crack with a couple of non-socially distant hookers. Uh, It's uh, mildly more amusing than playing Beltway Matrix and arguing that Nikki Haley is clearly the frontrunner for 2024. Shenanigans. Democrat shenanigans. That word is beginning to irk. H-A-W-R-I-G-A-N spells Harrigan. Proud of all the Irish blood that's in me. And devil a man can say a word again me. S-H-E-N-A-N I-G-A-N spells shenanigan. I'm have to work on that. As I said on yesterday's show, I don't believe Danish even has a word for shenanigan. 
Why shouldn't President-elect-elect -elect Biden be able to work with Republicans? He works with all kinds of people. Segregationists, Democrats from the 70s, Chinese communists, Kazakh oligarchs, IRA terrorists. There's no end to the broad, deep, fascinating, rich variety of his Rolodex. Uh, on that last point, by the way, uh, Joe Biden is professionally Irish. Here's an English reporter asking the president-elect, elect, elect, if he had a word for the BBC. Mr Biden, a quick word for the BBC. BBC, I'm Irish. Funny. In my experience, speaking as an authentic Irishman, at least for the purposes of post-election blarney, the ostentatious wearing of the green of fellows who've been in the United States since the mid-19th century can quickly become the grating of the green to denizens of the actual Emerald Isle. Yet Joe means it. His son may be a Ukrainian for tax purposes, but Biden is as all Irish as chugging a St. Paddy's Day shamrock shake from McDonald's while enjoying a soda bread muffin with butterscotch frosting. And in this case, uh, it may have geopolitical implications. On Friday's show, I laid out the big picture for the globalists, that populism is piffle uh, as long as it stays in obscure corners of Central and Eastern Europe. But when it starts heading west of there, the people have to be taught a lesson, good and hard. Peak populism was 2016, when the masses voted for Brexit and then Trump. For four years, everyone who matters has been determined to reverse Trump and to make it plain to the grunting deplorables that that is never going to happen again. Uh, they think that with the aid of the living dead, uh, I'm talking about Pennsylvania voters, not the Democrat candidate, uh, they think that they've accomplished that. So they're now plotting to make it a twofer. Biden has already said that he'll only do a post-EU Brexit trade deal with the UK if uh, London respects, quote, the Good Friday Agreement. That's nothing to do with bilateral trade. It's code for the Irish backstop and the Brussels-imposed transitional arrangements in perpetuity. In other words, Biden is demanding the UK accept what I called uh, in our summer tale for our time, The Prisoner of Windsor, you should listen to that if you haven't already, what I, what I called in that story vassalage light status with the European Union now and forever. I think I called that one correctly. And yet there was Boris Johnson eager to be the first foreign leader to take a call from President-elect-elect-elect-elect Biden to congratulate him on winning his official CNN certified victory. My old Telegraph colleague, Alison Pearson, says these days she just, quote, zones out when Boris is talking. I have no interest in anything he says, uh, says Alison. Biden is pre-zoned out anyway, so that shouldn't be a problem. But keep an eye on this. The guys insisting Joe is the president-elect, elect, 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 think they've reversed Trump. If they get a twofer with Brexit, they'll be confident the populism genie is back in the bottle. Does, does the Irish backstop even matter? Uh, right now, like much of the UK, Northern Ireland is under modified lockdown. Uh, due to end on Friday, and uh, who knows what 
regime will be being imposed on the people then. But right now you can't go to a pub in the Falls Road, never mind on a day trip to Dublin. So who cares about a, quote, hard border? In Britain and Ireland and Europe, there are hard borders around every routine aspect of daily life. The World Economic Forum, that's the Davos Jet Setters, making plans for the rest of us while uh, we uh, worry about uh, trivia like the Iowa caucus. The World Economic Forum reports that governments are now in record levels of deficit as COVID land lurches on toward the second year of the new normal. Canada's the worst followed by the US, UK, Brazil, Spain, Italy, Japan, South Africa, a rather healthier picture in Germany, Scandinavia, Eastern Europe. Just as the investigation into the 2016 election shenanigans have gone on so long, they've run into the 2020 election shenanigans, so Chicom 19 has gone on so long, it risks running into Chicom 21. Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to SteinOnline.com club for details. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show A war but not for democracy Silence in court And a young soldier comes home It's Armistice Day 1920 A hundred years from today In his first formal speech since his landslide election as president, Senator Warren Harding has told an Armistice Day celebration of 30,000 Texans and Mexicans that America, quote, did not fight to make the world safe for democracy. Speaking in Brownsville, he declared that democracy was threatened and humanity was dying long before American indignation called for the republic's defence. America fought, Mr Harding insisted, for the one supreme cause which inspires men to offer all for country and the flag. This, he declared, was the defence of America's rights. Elsewhere, across the United States, at the 11th hour of the 11th day, the great cities of a great republic fell silent. The taxi horns and streetcars, the elevated trains and policemen's whistles and newsboys crying extra, all ceased the din of the metropolis, as thousands upon thousands, as the Mohammedans do, turned toward the east, to France and to Flanders and bowed their heads in solemn prayer. To mark the second anniversary of the armistice in Chicago, a bugler sounded taps in City Hall and in the criminal courts and even in the county jail where 745 prisoners stood stiff and dignified for the moment of silence. It was different in Pittsburgh, though, where the presence of Mayor Edward V. Babcock in the reviewing stand enraged the city's veterans. Pittsburgh recently issued a permit for what Pennsylvania's returning heroes regard as a pro-German tag day. 
they flat-out refused to march past the stand and the parade ground to a halt. Attempting to give his Armistice Day speech, Mr Babcock was drowned out by the hoots and jeers of spectators and soldiers and eventually abandoned the reviewing stand, after which the parade proceeded. It was a more sombre Armistice Day overseas. In simultaneous ceremonies, France and the British Empire both marked the second anniversary of the end of the Great War by interring the body of a fallen soldier from that conflict whose remains could not be identified. In his anonymity, the unknown soldier, so-called, will embody now and forever, all the men who fell fighting for their country. The idea came to the Reverend David Railton, MC, a military chaplain on the Western Front, who has never forgotten a simple grave he saw four years ago at Armentier with a plain wooden cross and the handwritten words an unknown British soldier of the Black Watch. Britain's unknown warrior will lie at Westminster Abbey, while France's Tombe du Soldat Inconnu, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, has been consecrated beneath the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. The French warrior was selected at random from eight oak caskets, each drawn from a major battlefield in eastern France and laid in the citadel of Verdun. Auguste Tain, a veteran of the World War, then stepped forward and placed a bouquet of violets on the sixth of the eight caskets, which was then removed to Paris. Britain's unknown soldier was chosen from four bodies disinterred from the battlefield cemeteries at Ypres, Arras, the Aisne and the Somme just four days ago and transported to Saint-Paul-sur-Ternoise, where their coffins were draped with the Union flag. There, Brigadier General Wyatt selected one of the four to represent the more than one million British war dead from across the empire. The body was moved to a casket made of oak from the grounds of the Royal Palace of Hampton Court, and atop it was placed a crusader's sword and shield, the latter bearing the words, a British warrior who fell in the great war for king and country. The coffin was draped with a tattered Union Jack that that military chaplain, David Railton, had used as an altar cloth during services on the Western Front. A French honour guard stood vigil overnight, and then, two days ago, the fallen hero was taken to the quayside at Boulogne as the whole town lined the streets to pay France's tribute to a great ally and to see their own legendary warrior, Marshal Foch, salute a fallen comrade whose name we shall never know. It is before him, said the Marshal, that I can best express my profound feelings of thanks and admiration. The coffin was taken aboard HMS Verdun and one British soldier embarked from France for his journey home. Across the Channel, 
the same railway carriage that brought back the body of Edith Cavell, the brave nurse executed by the Germans, was waiting to bring the unknown soldier to Victoria Station in London. There he was placed upon a horse-drawn gun carriage, flanked by great generals and admirals for the next stage of the journey, through London streets filled with men and women, honouring a brave compatriot with no known name. At Sir Edwin Lutyens' magnificent new cenotaph in Whitehall, all the royal family were present, members of the War Cabinet, representatives of India and the Dominions, and with Field Marshal Haig, General Bing and Admiral Beatty among his pallbearers, the unknown soldier's funeral bear was placed at the foot of the cenotaph where the king laid a wreath on the casket. Cortege proceeded to the unknown warrior's final resting place in Westminster Abbey, where His Majesty threw a handful of French soil onto the coffin, and a lady stepped forward to present a maple leaf sent to her from Canada by an old soldier who had won the Victoria Cross at Lucknow. At his request, the maple leaf was placed inside the coffin and bearing the honours of king and commoner, an unknown man embodying his comrades and his cause, was finally at rest. And that's the way of a world after war. Armistice Day, 1920. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Kate Smythe, the... 
Governess General of the Mark Stein Club's Antipodean Dominions, uh, Kate Smythe passed this on to me uh, from a Stein Clubber with whom she is in contact but who doesn't usually chip in to our comments section, uh, but is surely welcome to. Don't be shy. We love to hear from non-regular commenters. We really do. And this one is, as Kate says, strongly worded and from a non-American perspective. Here we go. I'm not interested in anyone who supports or endorses the disgusting creature Biden and this massive electoral fraud in any way. If you want to talk about being mature or accepting defeat or being polite or respecting other opinions, you can F right off. We aren't in that place anymore. We've spent 50 years being polite and look where we are right now. Preach it, brother. That is correct. If uh, you're being mature... By accepting defeat, what you're really doing is accepting the heist and normalizing it in American politics. Uh, And speaking of normal, our commenter continues, this is not normal politics either. It's third world politics. It's not some little dispute that has no consequences. It's the biggest electoral fraud since the rise of early 20th century tyrannies. It brings with it the threat of social media companies running our lives with less restraint than ever. China dominating the globe, the biggest engine of the Western world sputtering to a halt. US energy self-sufficient going, and with it the bargaining chip that helped the US broker historic peace deals in the Middle East. That is also uh, an important insight. Uh, Woke ideology is global, Islam is global, corporatism is global, China is acting on the global stage, our enemies are in each of our nations. There is nowhere else to bury your head in the sand and pretend this doesn't matter. There is nowhere to escape to. If you want to congratulate Biden, please, 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 F off. You are no use to me. You are part of the problem. You are endorsing evil. I said the same to people still voting for Jeremy Corbyn. I say the same to those who want to accept this. These are radical departures from normality, not minor differences of opinion between good people who want the best but just differ on how to get it. We are in the space where only rough words and strong deeds will save us and defend our freedom. In America, in the UK, everywhere, stop playing cricket by the effing rules when the other team are throwing hand grenades and calling it bowling. That is all true. And many of those forcefully made points ought to be self-evident, even to the squishiest-spined so-called conservatives of the American establishment. As I said many months ago, if Biden wins, there's not going to be any unity. There's only going to be unity in the sense of a one-party state, where unity means the absence of opposition, i.e. the absence of you. In the last week, the most anodyne tweets and Facebook posts expressing polite scepticism about certain electoral results hither and yon have been ruthlessly suppressed. It's less than a month since Twitter cancelling the New York Post Twitter feed was sufficiently unusual to attract attention. Now it's routine, the new normal, as we're supposed to say. That's the only unity we're being invited to embrace. Shut up or else. And as this club member points out to Kate, we face big picture challenges from woke 
uh, corporatism to China, which actually are different ends of the same challenge because the woke corporations are in bed with the Chaicoms and uh, doing the Chaicoms bidding. Um, and even in the global hyperpower, the voting irregular irregularities are local. They're in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Nevada. But the threats are global. And it's not useful to spend two years fascinated by whether Beto O'Rourke is up two points in Iowa. Uh, we need to stop being parochial about this because China isn't. We need to get out playing on all the turf, Republicans and uh squishy conservative parties throughout the West have ceded over the last three decades. China is advancing its interests on every continent. And if the CNN certified Biden, quote unquote, election holds, this will be a bigger victory for them than the Wu flu is. As our commenter says, uh, stop pretending you're playing cricket uh, just because the other team is insisting its hand grenades are merely googlies. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. Well, a lot of listeners have found the last week very depressing, so I thought we could use a chin-up song. Perk you up a bit. This is a young lady I first met when she was a baby, baby Eliza, about eight months old or some such. She's the daughter of John Caird, co-director of Les Miserables, and Francis Raphael, uh, who starred in the original West End production of the show and is a marvellous actress and singer. And then one day, I flew into Heathrow and my driver switched on the radio as we headed downtown and I discovered baby Eliza was now a pop star. I get tired and upset And I'm trying to care a little less When I Google, I only get depressed I was taught to dodge those issues I was told Don't worry, there's no doubt There's always something to Troubles in your old kit bag? That's right. A top five hit in the United Kingdom, number one in Belgium, but uh, only in Flanders, not the francophone Cartier. A big hit all over Europe uses the title line of the British Tommy's great marching off to war song from a century earlier and turns it into a new millennium pop song hook. And as a result, the family of two long-dead brothers received a rather substantial royalties boost. If November the 11th, Armistice Day, is the way the Great War ended, pack up your troubles is 
not quite the way it began, but pretty close. In 1915, a competition was held in Britain to find, quote, the most morale-boosting song, and a pair of siblings decided to enter. Felix Powell wrote the music, and his brother George, writing under the name George Asaph, supplied the words. Their song wound up winning, and pretty soon the whole nation and much of the empire was singing along. Well, that lyric is little more than a cheery title interrupted by what to American ears may be a startling image while there's a Lucifer to light your fag. A Lucifer was a popular brand of match and a fag remains British slang for cigarette, which only doubles the song sings. It's not just pro-war, it's pro-smoke. Still, it was a blockbuster hit in Necessarily what I'd want to hear as I was marching off to the hell of trench warfare and poison gas on the Western Front. It was hailed as, quote, the most optimistic song ever written, although by the end of his life, its composer found it hard to live up to its hearty injunction. Two decades after, quote unquote, the war to end all wars, Felix Powell found himself serving in its sequel. World War II, as an old soldier in the Peacehaven Home Guard in Sussex. The Home Guard were uh, local reserve militias, uh, staffed by those too old or infirm to be sent overseas. Google Dad's Army, You'll, uh, you won't regret it. And in 1942, the composer of the most optimistic song ever written put on his uniform, loaded his rifle and committed suicide. And if you know the fate of Felix Powell, it gives an unintended poignancy to such a good-natured sing-along. Pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. That's what Jim Radford did over three quarters of a century ago. He was, as far as can be determined, the youngest man to participate in the Allied invasion of Normandy. By man, I mean that on D-Day, June 6th, 1944, he was 15 years old. 
And for the 70th anniversary observances, 85-year-old Jim was invited onto the stage of the Royal Albert Hall in London to reminisce in music about that day. Tonight we are honoured to have a veteran of the Normandy invasion with us on stage. He was a crew member of a ship that set sail on the 6th of June and at 15 he must have been one of the youngest there. So please welcome Jim Radford. Jim, how... How do you feel today, seeing us all gathered and remembering these events? Contrasting emotions, I think, glad and sad. I'm glad that I survived. I've had 70 years of a good life, and I'm very sad every time I think of D-Day, about all the poor devils who never made it back. And that's the people I'm thinking about on this day and every, every year. After the war, Jim Radford became a folk singer, and at that D-Day 70th anniversary gala at the Albert Hall, he sang the first song he ever wrote. In the cold grey light of the 6th of June In the year of 44 The Empire Lots sailed out from Poe to join with thousands more The largest fleet the world had seen We sailed in close array And we set our course for Normandy At the dawning of the day There was not one man in all our crew But knew what lay in store For we had waited for that day Through five long years of war We knew that many would not return But all our hearts were true for we were bound for Normandy Where we had a job to do Now the Empire Lodge was a deep sea tug With a crew of 33 And I was just the galley boy On my first trip to sea I little thought when I left home Of the dreadful sights I'd see But I came to manhood on the day That I first saw Normandy At Aramance off the beach of gold Neath the rocket's deadly glare we towed our block ships into place And we built a harbour there Mid shot and shell we built it well As history does agree While brave men died in the swirling tide 
on the shores of Normandy. For every hero's name that's known, a thousand died as well. On stakes and wires, their bodies hung, rocked in the ocean swell. And many a mother wept that day for the sons they loved so well. Many cracked a joke and catch the smoke as they storm the gates of hell. As the years pass by, I can still recall the men I saw that day who died upon that blood-soaked sand where now sweet children play. And those of you who were unborn, who've lived in liberty, remember those who made it so on the shores of Normandy. Men who cracked a joke and catched a smoke as they stormed the gates of hell. It's not the greatest tune, but that is a sharp and vivid couplet, full of life, as those men storming hell that dawn surely were. And among them was a 15-year-old boy who was a 15-year-old man. He survived D-Day, but not COVID-19 dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 92, the youngest known member of the Allied invasion force of June 6, 1944, Jim Radford. That song, The Shores of Normandy, hit number one on the Amazon download chart on the 75th anniversary of D-Day last year. That will do it for our show this Veterans Day and Remembrance Day. Laura's links will round up the internet right here later today, and I will see you on the telly with Tucker. Oh, and Clubland Q&A, live around the planet this Friday. Don't miss it. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.